scriptures to Hebrews chapter 6. Expository preaching. As you've been, if you've been here for any length of time, you realize that I just go through books of the Bible, section by section, and it's such a great blessing, but sometimes it's hard. And we come across one of the hardest sections of Scripture in the whole Bible today. We're in a two, second part of three sermons on this text. I really did want to want to pause and kind of put the brakes on as we're going through Hebrews and, and take our time with this text. It, it requires time. There's some things that you can see at 10,000 feet that you cannot see at 100 feet. And then there are some things that you have to fly low to see. And we have to fly low these, these three weeks to see what the Lord has for us here. We're in the middle of, of a great pause in the book of Hebrews. The writer has hesitated after beginning to explain this, this, this great doctrine of of Christ fulfilling the high priesthood and more specifically the high priesthood of Melchizedek and he pauses. He realizes that he's lost some people. That as we said last week, some people are are looking out the window or doing their to-do list or, or thinking about what they need to get done, and he wants to shake them, shake us out of our stupor. And so he cautions them, first of all, against apathy. That was last week. If you look at chapter 5, verse 11, just a few verses up from chapter 6, he says this, about this, the Melchizedekian priesthood, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. You see, what he's doing here is he's, he's chiding them about their laziness towards God's word. He's calling them, them babies that still need milk when they should be on solid food, when the teeth should have put, poked through the gums and are able to consume the harder things. He's calling them the kindergarten students who still need to learn the basics, the colors and shapes, the ABCs when they should this time, by this time be teachers. And last week we saw that there are grave dangers to being apathetic towards God's word. 
You'll not be under, understand the, the connections in scriptures. This is actually why he paused. He sees that they, they're not making the connection. That's the main point. The second danger is that you'll be unskilled in the word of righteousness. Verse 13. Apathy towards God's word leads you to not knowing your Bible. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that. Leading you to not being able to discern good from evil. Verse 14. You become easy prey for false teachers. One who is easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Easily led astray. Apt to wander from the faith. And that brings him to saying what we have for us today. Leads him to give one of the most most chilling warnings in all of Scripture. Look with me at verse 4 in chapter 6. He goes on to say this apathy leads to apostasy. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Heavenly Father, guide me, Spirit, use me, help us to understand this text, help us to grapple with it, help us, Spirit, to understand it and apply it to our lives. Amen. The uninspired heading in your Bibles is a warning against apostasy. You see, the danger of apathy is that it is the road to apostasy. Every first lady in the last 70 years has had kind of a a cause, if you will. It was started, I think, by Lady Bird Johnson, where she had she put her, her, her energy into the beautification of America, taking on the task of beautifying the highways of America, taking down billboards, making them more pleasant to drive on. Michelle Obama, it was, it was let's move, right? It was this push to n- nutrition in kids. Perhaps one of the most memorable of these first lady causes is Nancy Reagan's Just Say No. 
We all remember that phrase, just say no, right? It was a warning for kids, for everybody, but especially kids against not doing drugs. Just say no to drugs because drugs kills you. It demolishes relationships. It deadens your soul. So just say no to drugs. And one of the lasting teachings that stuck with us from that campaign is that marijuana is a gateway drug, right? Seemingly harmless, it's not. Among the other harmful things it is, is it is a gateway drug to harder drugs. You ask any heroin addict, and they will say that they did not initially start out injecting heroin into a vein. They started with a much milder, so to speak, gateway drug. And that's what our writer is saying spiritually, that apathy is this gateway drug, if you will, into apostasy. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why he, he, he goes on to give this grave warning. The definition of apostasy, if we can define it, is a state in which a person no longer claims salvation in Christ alone as they once did. Apostasy is a condition where a person rejects the truth of the gospel. Apostasy is a conscious and continual denial of Jesus Christ. And apostasy, brothers and sisters, is scary. It's described here with some of the more sobering words in all of Scripture. If you look, you can see them there. It is impossible to store, restore to repentance. Impossible to restore to repentance. You're re-crucifying the Son of God. You're holding the Son of God with contempt or holding him up for contempt by the world. And these words should terrify you. They should. As those of our reading in Scripture just a moment ago, they should terrify you. We have an example of this in in Esau, apparently. In Hebrews 12, we learn that he wanted the blessing back. He wanted to come back. He wanted to return. He even cried tears, it says. But it was impossible for him to be restored. That seems to be what we see in the example that the writer of the Hebrews uses in chapter 3 with the Israelites in the wilderness, isn't it? You look at verse 18 there. It says that once they came back from investigating the promised land that the Lord said, this is yours. I'm giving it to you. Go in. And they came back and said, we don't trust God. Once they rejected God and his provision, God condemned that generation to die in the wilderness. 
And here, it seems that a person can reject God in such a simple, in such a fundamental way that God says it is impossible for them to repent. Now here's the question. Here's, here's what this whole passage hinges on, brothers and sisters. Who is the them? Who's the them? Who's this text written about? That's the question that we have to answer in order to understand this passage. The author describes this person in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6 using five spiritual experiences, doesn't he? So who does the author have in mind as he is writing these, these chilling words? Traditionally, there are three possibilities. Three possibilities of who the author has in mind, who the them is. And the first possibility is it's nobody. It's nobody. The author is giving a hypothetical warning. Technically, it's called a reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. A false argument pushed to its logical and absurd conclusion. Okay? Now, this isn't foreign in Scripture. We see this in chapter 15 of, of the Corinthian letter, the first Corinthian letter, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of Christ, right? You remember this? He says, if Christ has not been raised, and then he goes on to, to push that to its logical conclusion, and he says, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, we're false witnesses, you're still in your sins, and by the way, those who have died believing it are lost. That's the absurd conclusion, if, if Christ had not been raised. But, but the very next verse is, but indeed Christ has been raised. If this is what is going on here, then the author is, is shooting a warning shot, if you will, across our bow using blank cartridges. A shot meant to scare, but no potential harm. And if you go on to read verse 9, the very next verse, of which, which I stopped short of, this gives this some credibility. Because the author goes on to say he feels sure of better things in their case. This might indeed be a hypothetical warning. The problem is with that, though, is, is that we know from other scriptures that apostasy is real. We have examples of people apostatizing. We have the whole wilderness population. We have the sin unto death in 1 John 5. We have the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, the scripture talks about. We have Demas, one of Paul's closest ministerial friends who went with him for years who abandoned him, he says in 2 Timothy 4, because he loved the world. So the first option is, it's, he's talking to nobody. The second option that we have of this text is, it's a warning to genuine believers that, that you can lose your salvation. And this has been used as a proof text for this for centuries. That those five qualities that, that he talks about here are actually qualities of 
of a genuine believer. Right? Shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit. Enlightened. Tasted the goodness. Experienced the powers of the age to come. Sounds like a believer. If this is where you land, then, then you really do have to grapple with a lot of the rest of Scripture, don't you? The clearer passages seem to indicate that once God has you, he has you. The clearer passages seem to indicate that you cannot lose your salvation. John 10, whom I have in my hand, no man can pluck out. I and the Father are one. You can't jump out. I've got you. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will take it to completion. God's going to persevere with you. The golden chain of Romans 8, we love to hear Romans 8 preached on because it says, For I, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in his first letter, says that our salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Praise God. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you have to grapple with the gift of the Holy Spirit, don't you? Given to you once as a seal, says in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4. And I... The biggie for me, if, if you believe you can lose your salvation, that really places the sovereignty of God on the chopping block for you. That's a really slippery slope if you can do something that is outside God's control. But there is a third group of people that this warning could be meant for. The them and that is the tares, the tares among the wheat. It is a genuine warning to the unbelievers in the church. Scripture is pretty consistent throughout in showing that there are unbelievers among the believers. But there's all, it's always a mixed bag. The author's earlier point on the wilderness generation speaks of this. They all came out of Egypt, right? All of them came out of Egypt. They all went through the Red Sea. They all went to Sinai. They all left Sinai and ate the manna, drank the water that came from the rock twice. They saw the pillar of fire. They followed the pillar of fire. And yet they did not enter the promised land. That's the way it's always been. Paul picks this up in Romans 9 when he says in, in verse 6 of that, he's talking to the, to the Roman church that is, has Hebrews in it and he's saying, not all Israel are true Israelites. He goes on to explain that for three chapters. Meaning not all who went to the temple 
Not all who brought sacrifices, not all who observed the Sabbath, not all who did all the ceremonial washings were really true spiritual Israelites. In other words, they had Abraham's blood running through their veins, but they did not have an inkling of the righteousness before God that Abraham had. They looked like an Israelite on the outside, but they weren't on the inside. They did all the things a true Israelite did, yet were not saved. Jesus taught on this group within the group continually when he was on earth. And in Matthew 13, in fact, he gives, he gives three parables in a row trying to help the people that were following him understand this. The parable of the seeds and soils. You know that parable well, right? The first seed was sown and it was on a hard path and snatched up by Satan. Some people never get an opportunity. It's just their heart is hard and Satan is opportunistic. And the second seed is sown among rocky soil and it, and it sprouts up and, boy, it looks like wheat. But when persecution comes, when difficulties come because of your faith in the gospel, it dies. I think this is the group that the writer of the Hebrews is writing to. Because as you remember, the Hebrews that he's writing to are under great persecution. And they're tempted to leave, aren't they? That's why he's writing this letter. And then there's the third seed that is sown among thorns. And it grows up, but, but is choked by the world, right? The things of the world, Jesus explains to his disciples, woo him away. There's Demas. That's what happened to Demas. Paul says. But then there's the good soil. It's sown, its root is deep, and its fruit is obvious. Then he, Jesus goes on to tell about the parable of the net. The net is cast wide and is pulled in, and the, the good fish and the bad fish are not separated until the end. They remain together. And then there's the parable of the wheat and the tares. Where the wheat is growing and the weeds start growing up together with it. And I think that is what this list actually describes. These five qualities actually describe someone who looks like a Christian on the outside, but is not regenerate. People who are in and among God's children, but not one of them. So the Holy Spirit inspires these five verses in order to, to expose these people and to warn the others. Look with me at verse 4. It says, It is impossible, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. There's your first quality. Once been enlightened. These people have had a spiritual experience. They've had a spiritual experience. They've been evangelized. Maybe they've even said the sinner's prayer. They seemingly understood the gospel and, and kind of nod. They've given their lives to Christ. 
I bumped into a woman this week on Wednesday who I was told gave her life to Christ about a month ago. And so I asked her about it. I said, how's your newfound faith going? What's going on? I wanted to have a discussion with her. And she said, well, I went to church the first week, but it was long, and I haven't been back. Now, we talked about a lot of other things, but I don't know where that woman is. She actually confessed faith in Christ, repented of her sins. That's early and time will tell. I know another woman who, who years ago was in my kitchen at home and, and, and after hearing the gospel, she, she flushed and actually staggered backwards. She had an, an experience. And I know she's not walking with the Lord now. There are a great number of people who have had a spiritual experience and may even have walked with the Lord for a time. But they left the narrow road for the bridegroom. These people, secondly, he says they've tasted the heavenly gift. Maybe the, some of the benefits of salvation. Maybe he felt peace for a while. Or the benefits of community even. You know, when a person comes into a loving community that is supporting them and caring for them, that's a great benefit if they've never had it. But most likely this refers to the Lord's Supper, what we have right before us today. Being among the community of believers sitting here, they eat the bread, they drink the juice, the the heavenly gift. Much like the wilderness generation, they put blood on their doorposts, didn't they? Then they went in as the angel of death passed over and they ate the Passover meal. Yet we're told they're not true Israelites. Thirdly, we see that the tares also share in the Holy Spirit. When you're in and among the community of God, you're going to brush up against the acts of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit. Like, like those thousands who followed Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit's work. Like maybe those nine lepers that didn't come back to thank Jesus after they were healed. Those who witnessed Lazarus rising from the dead. And yet they didn't believe. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 is a prime example of this. Saw the work of the Holy Spirit. Followed Philip everywhere. It says he repented and was baptized. It says that in scripture. Yet you know what Peter says of him? You are not one of us. Chilling. Fourth, the tares also taste of the goodness of the word of God. 
you love hearing scripture preached on. You love going to Sunday school and learning. You nod positively. Maybe even get emotional over it. Describes people who love the Word of God. People like Herod. Do you remember Herod? He loved hearing John the Baptist preach. He would go out and sit for hours listening to him. And he wasn't one of us. John MacArthur writes of the tares, this describes many people who hear the gospel and are attracted to its beauty and its sweetness. It tastes very good to them, but they did not chew or swallow it, much less digest it. They just kept on tasting. Before long, its appealing taste was gone, and they became indifferent to it. Their spiritual taste buds became insensitive and unresponsive. That's the trajectory that the writer of Hebrews is saying apathy takes you on. Lastly, the tares taste the powers of the age to come. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ in the power of the resurrection. Power of Jesus' resurrection radically changes your life, brothers and sisters. It probably refers to those who are seemingly changed by that knowledge, yet have only tasted. I want you to notice in chapter in verses four and five the words that the author was inspired to use: taste, enlightened, shared. Those are not, that's not the language of salvation. The language of salvation is drink, consume, commit, sacrifice. Scripture teaches very clearly that there is a group of people inside God's people that look like God's people, act like God's people, speak like God's people. Do the things that God's people do. Take communion. Serve on hospitality. Make coffee. Visit the sick. Teach children Sunday school. Even hold offices in God's church. Who look like a child of God for a long time, but are not God's children. And all you have to do is look at Judas, right? Stuart Oliott writes in his commentary, if we think the language of verses 4 and 5 is too strong to use for unregenerate people, it is because we have not understood an important strand of biblical theology. We have not grasped how far someone may go and yet still turn out to be a counterfeit believer. We have not not yet got a hold of the solemn fact that not every experience of the Holy Spirit is a saving experience. 
Scripture teaches us very clearly that until Jesus returns, the church is comprised of wheat and tares. Those who are genuine believers and those who look like it but are not. And again, all you have to do is look at one person in Scripture to see that this is true. Judas Iscariot. He was enlightened, wasn't he? He had an experience. He had such an experience that it caused him to leave everything for three years and follow Jesus. It's a pretty serious experience. He tasted the heavenly gift. Just take one example. He took the loaves and fishes and distributed it and saw the multiplication in his very hands. He shared in the Holy Spirit. He saw the Spirit's activity. He even went out and did some of those things when Jesus sent them out two by two. He tasted of the goodness of God's word. He sat on that mount when Jesus preached that sermon that day. He nodded. He loved it. He tasted the powers of the age to come. He might have been one of the ones who ran over and took, took some of the burial clothing off of Lazarus when Jesus said, unloose him. He went all the way to the night before Jesus died. But we know he wasn't one of them. Be better for him never to have been born. It's one of the people that we know is in hell. And that, brothers and sisters, is terrifying. That is terrifying. It's terrifying to read the word impossible in Scripture. Impossible to repent. I think there's reason the Holy Spirit inspired these words. It's to cause us to pause. It's to cause each of us to pause. And maybe apply what he says elsewhere in Scripture to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. To test yourself. I think that's what verses 7 and 8 are, are there for. If you look at those verses, he goes on to say, For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom on it and produces a crop useful for those who forsake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The metaphor here is of, of rain falling on the land. I think that we can pretty securely say that the rain is, is, is God's word or, or the gospel and the land is, is you, me. 
The rain's going to do one of two things. It's going to, it's going to produce a crop that's useful and good, good fruit, or you'll see other land that that rain comes and thorns and, and thistles grow. In other words, the fruit will eventually show the legitimacy of the root. Now you're looking at me right now and saying, I'm pretty terrified, Pastor. This is scary. How do I know if I'm a wheat or a tear? Next week, we're going to explore that fully, but I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you considering a question. What's your reaction to what was just preached? What's your reaction to what you just sat here hearing? If you sat here and are really shaken by this text. In other words, you're here looking down the row. If you're here sitting and you're not shaken by this text. If if you're thinking of somebody that should listen to this sermon. I've got somebody in mind that should hear this. They really need to hear this. I wish Tina were here. She really needs to hear this. If you're not affected by all, at all, by what was just preached, there's cause for pause. If you're listening to this and it causes you to become angry, if you're shaking your fist at God and saying, how could he? If it causes you to distance yourself from God because of any bitterness, there's cause for pause. If your pride is inflamed right now and you can't wait to get out of here, if you vow never to read, much less study this passage again, if you're angry with me for preaching this message, there's cause for pause. If this warning just washes over you and there's no terror, no horror, no dread, no fear, That's cause for concern. Because warnings like this are in Scripture to shake you up, to root out the apathy that's in you, that's in each one of us. To encourage you to go cold turkey if you're addicted to that gateway drug of apathy. To wake you up so that you do not end up being immunized by the gospel when he returns. Having just enough of it not to be radically changed and end up being one of those who spend their whole life in church among the community of God and here at the end of your life, a way I never knew you. But if you're sitting here with a lump in your throat, with some spiritual sweat on your forehead, 
That's a good thing. It's like those who worry about committing the unforgivable sin. They come running in and say, I'm really, really terrified. I can tell you for sure you have not committed it. This passage, this passage is intended to terrify believers. Why? So that you realize that it is never safe to sin. That to constantly choose the path of sin is to be lost. If this passage causes you to cling to Christ with all of your might, to commit to him more fervently, to grip him more fiercely than you ever have before, there's cause for confidence. If this message causes you to go deeper, causes you to push through those elementary things, encourages you to pound out your faith with fear and trembling before the Lord in Scripture, with your God, in community, there's cause for great confidence in the genuineness of your faith. If the fear of apostasy grips your heart and causes you to humble yourself before God, confess your sin right now. Seek his mercy, his grace. Depend on him as your, his, your only high priest, your only hope in life and in death. There's cause for a great confidence in your faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if this text shakes you to your core, then look at what verse 9 tells you. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word, your hard word, spirit. Where I have erred, cover my tracks. Where truth is, drive it deep. In Jesus' name, amen.